Welcome, 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 one and all, big and small. You've reached the podcast known as The Three Carnies. So come on, let's show you around. The people in these towns, they're asleep. All day at work, at home, sleepwalkers. They're waking up. Welcome, everyone, to the very first episode of The Three Carnies. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. This is our very first episode talking about a show that we all love, Carnival. So this is the very first podcast for us three. Um, uh, we uh, got together from Reddit, and, and here we are. It's been a, a fun ride. We are very excited to talk about this show. We all have different stories of how we got here. Monica, why don't you let everyone know how you started with Carnival? Well, not to age myself at all, but I actually watched it live on HBO when it was airing. I got into it because this might come up a few times in the podcast, but I had a crush on Nick Stahl from both In the Bedroom and the Terminator movie. And I was kind of alternative. A story about freaks from kind of out of society appealed to me. Yeah. And when it got canceled after just two seasons, I was crushed. And I even sent in a letter admonishing HBO. So that's kind of my very deep emotional relationship with Carnival. I am sure the Nick Stahl crush will never, ever come up again. Never. (laughs) I have matured right past that. (laughs) Yeah. What was the outcome of your letter? Clearly, they did not listen to my strong words and did not bring it back. But I did get a very generic, thanks for watching. We appreciate your feedback type letter. So... Next time. Oh, but you were part of the movement. You did something. I don't know if movement is a good word for it. More like part of the standstill. (laughs) Hey, if you're all together, it still counts. You still put it on the resume. (laughs) (laughs) How about you, Dana? How did you get here? It took me a little longer to get into the show. I started watching it around, I believe, 2009. I had it recommended to me on Amazon and I remember hearing about the show before I'm like oh yeah I'll check this out so I watched like the first episode like a couple times and then I'd watch like the first half season and then the full season and then eventually watch the show so and I really enjoyed it by the time I got to the end but I feel like it was until like when I rewatched it like five years later ish that I came really obsessed ish (laughs) (laughs) and now i have some of the scripts some merchandise you'll probably hear me talk about a bunch of stuff that i've read over the years from like interviews yeah i I still thought it funny when i i got one book that was talking about the show and i was thinking like oh i found this gem this internet treasure and you're like oh yeah i've had that (laughs) (laughs) that's just part of the collection I still think you should read it. <laughs> I've definitely opened it. <laughs> no, I will read it. It is, um, it's really interesting because it's, mm-hmm. it, it's a show that's prompted that kind of exploration into like themes and how it was produced, storylines and whatnot. And I mean, we're like, what, 20 years later? I guess it leaves me, which I'm the most boring about it. How did I get into the show? It was on. <laughs> super deep was interesting um i mean at the time there was like nothing like it i think pranos came before it that but like all of the really big production long drawn out storylines they weren't there i think it's what 2002 2003 one of you guys definitely knows that i definitely don't (laughs) there wasn't anything that took a story and it just it, it grabbed me and even now it's a very surprising thing if someone will ask me and say, oh, what kind of shows do you like? And I'll mention Carnival. 
and there's just like blank expression. And I'm like, where have you been? You've had plenty of time <laughs> to watch and love this show. I don't know if we need to be friends anymore. <laughs> well, now that uh, you've all met the gang, Monica, why don't you uh, slice into Milfay? Let's get into what happened in the first episode of Carnival Ever. Uh, it opens with rolling wind sounds and a black screen. Close up of the face of a weathered man with dwarfism comes in. He gives a very mystic monologue about the fight between good and evil and sun exploding. We then switch to a quick succession of edited scenes tied together with gothy, sinister music. Then we cut a young man waking up at a table. Let's, uh, I don't know, let's call him Ben, how about? <laughs> Dust is blowing into the house. He looks over to an older woman coughing in bed. It cuts to outside their worn down house and really bleak, hot dust. Text comes up. Saying Oklahoma, 1934. We're back inside, and the woman is clearly sick with dust pneumonia. Ben walks over and kneels at her bed. He's clearly upset. He goes to touch her, and she backs away in terror, clutching a cross. He says, Mama, please, and she refuses. He slumps away, crying, and she passes away. So that was quite an emotional opening scene. Tell me what came up for you guys. That first scene where he has this wonderful, wonderful monologue felt very Shakespearean. It felt very dramatic. And honestly, the way they used the lights, it felt like he was talking to me. I was just grabbed. Tina, how did you think about that first bit? I do agree. I do feel like he's talking to you. I feel like there's some sort of like a theater aspect in that scene. They recall a few different theater aspects and a few scenes throughout the series too. The The dream sequence was pretty grabbing too. It made me interested in seeing how that came about. The dream sequence was hard to watch. You know, it goes by so fast. I feel like there's like a thousand hidden messages in that one little 10, 15 seconds. And so I'm glad that I get to pause and be like, oh, what's this? And what's this? And all that. But like, it's just there's so much content in that very brief window. Yeah, it, it's really jarring, both in how fast it goes through those images and the actual content. And then we go from there to, oof, he's, he's awake. And then we have this, I mean, I know they call it the Great Depression, but like it is very depressing seeing him in that room alone with his mother. And that dust, it's just, it's everywhere. Like it's on the clothes. It's the color of everything. It's in the lungs. It just, <sighs> sad. Yeah. It was really, really tense. And with so little dialogue, they did so much. Yeah. The flash to outside of their house was such a great way to set up the atmosphere because you can see that the ground is just stripped everywhere in this hot sun. So it gives you a sense of what's going on in the house and the poverty going on, but it also gives you a sense of the larger situation in the Midwest at that time. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, with that very simple set, and very simple dialogue, we know so much about the world, what it's like to live in that house, very isolated and alone, what it's like to live in that area without hope and just perpetual sentiments of being beat down. Mm -hmm. And that relationship, I mean, we hear mama please, and we know it's not a harmonious relationship. And, and how she clutches the cross. We don't need more than that. How'd you feel about Tina? Oh boy. I thought it was quite sad. His mother's very sick and then just dies. And then he's left on his own with nothing. <laughs> the next scene, we see Ben digging a hole outside the house. His mom's body is laying there covered by a sheet. 
a giant bulldozer pulls up aggressively trying to stake claim to the farm. A truck pulls up from the other direction, and we see the intro man. I don't know. Um, let's call him Samson. How about that? And another guy who we later find out is named Jonesy. They're making a bet about whether the young guy is going to get squashed or not. Jonesy goes out of the truck to push the odds towards his favor and walks over to the young man. As he's walking, we see he's wearing a knee brace and a baseball hat. When talking to Ben, he notices he has a chain hanging from his ankle. After some negotiating, talking, arguing between the three, and by negotiating, I mean very fast rocks pitched uh, by Jonesy to the driver, the driver finally sees the body and swears. And that's kind of the second scene. They really know how to lift you up, don't they? (laughs) (laughs) My takeaways from that bit were the really short shovel and the small hole and his mom dead in the sheet she was just in. It just kind of tied everything in together. Nobody else was there. It's just him. Ten minutes ago, she's alive in the sheet. Now she's going to be in a hole with from a tiny shovel. I don't know. It it cemented kind of him trying to do his best. Yeah, probably had to sell the good shovel. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the the two men in the truck had a good camaraderie. Like you know, that's one thing to think about the show is that it does a lot with very little just from the actors and how they're engaging with each other. It's apparent throughout the show. <laughs> it's it's funny because I didn't take the obvious sign of him being a ball player with the hat. I was just <laughs> thinking like, oh, he has a pretty good aim. And oh, he, <laughs> he spits like he was a ball player. And, <laughs> but you guys are wonderful to help point those little things out that are the big <laughs> things out that I missed. <laughs> Yeah, they specifically went out and looked for people who looked like they should have played baseball in the 30s. <laughs> and I think they did a pretty good job. They found the right guy. One thing I, I really liked about this scene is the bulldozer was almost a fourth character. How it pulled up and you just got this big shot of from the front of the bulldozer taking up the full screen and... The driver on top of this giant thing, you know, shouting down. And they did such a great job of kind of a Samson and Goliath type relationship with the bulldozer and Ben. And the guy on it is so basic. Like he's as inhuman as the machine. He's so basic. I guess what I mean is that he is an extra. He could be anybody. He could be old. He could be young. He could be uh, dressed in any fashion. And I and what I gathered from him being on there is like you're saying, like the boulders are being an extra character. Is that he was a part of the destruction and not necessarily like his own person. Yeah, and he really didn't have much sympathy like he was just doing his job Mm -hmm. so we get a makeshift funeral scene other people that are with the truck come out of their big caravan they stand around ben and his mom she's buried now uh singing and playing music the young man is wobbly and looks around and sees that is a carnival and he gets to see all sorts of characters. As soon as the music stops, the bulldozer crashes straight into the house. Like the second it stops. We see Samson yell, okay, children, let's shake some dust. Clearly he is in charge. The group's up in arms about leaving Ben and in the midst of the debate, he just collapses. We hear a police siren come, and they go ahead and grab him. Clearly, they dislike the law more than they don't want him with them. So, thoughts on our first glance of the characters? I like the idea 
that in a world full of decent, normal people, that the side of people doing the decent thing, they are the members of the carnival. He had nobody to attend said funeral. It was him, tiny shovel, dead mom. And they go out. They they sing a song. They try to, you know, put on their Sunday best. I don't know. I just got a lot of humanity from that scene where they're all gathered. And then the direct comparison of the inhumanity of the bulldozer pushing over the home. Like, with little effort and just a few seconds, his whole life is gone. Blink of an eye, gone. It was very powerful to see how quickly something can just be decimated like that. Did anything um, see that to you, Tina? Well, I think it was interesting how we get through like this funeral service-ish. We got to meet all our main cast of characters. Same way that Ben does. He just kind of like is looking around at everyone. Who are all these people? (laughs) (laughs) Some of them do look kind of strange, but they all seem like very good-hearted enough to go out of their way for someone they've only just met. Do you guys want to hear some character descriptions from the script? Absolutely. All right. For Samson, they say he's a dwarf leaning on his cane, hat somehow never leaving his head. He has sad, dusky eyes with an old soul. For Ben, they say he's uh, 17 and lean with hunger, but I'm pretty sure Ben is actually 18 in the series. For Jones, um, says he's in his mid-30s, wiry, tough-looking, and he's sporting a dusty Cleveland Indians hat. Um, on his right leg is an iron brace. Uh, for Loads, talks about his eyes. He has sightless eyes, and they're milky white. Uh, for Ruthie, it says she's a wizened tattoo snake charmer in her late 50s. Sophie is late teens, raven hair, pale, flawless skin, violet eyes to die for. I believe she's actually 21 in this series, though. So I think it's interesting how well or how different that's reflected in the casting. Yeah, they went out of their way to find people who looked like they were from the period. They wanted actors who were not, like, well-known for something. They wanted, like, character actors who could easily disappear into the role. Do you guys have, like, a thought of any of the cast members who are not, didn't actually go up to the funeral service and are just standing by the cars? I mean, it's kind of... At this point in the sh- in the show, hard to to say, but it is how they're kind of on the outside of action. So we leave Oklahoma and we switch scenes to California. We get a close up of a minister who we later find out his name is Brother Justin, and a woman who also later we find out is his sister Iris. She is sitting on the side of the church stage. Brother Justin starts to make a very impassioned sermon about plagues, the apocalypse, etc. Iris catches a woman who is clearly dirtier than the rest of the congregation's hand stall just a little bit long in the basket. The congregation starts singing hymns. The dirty woman starts to leave. But somehow Iris sneaks up out of freaking nowhere and passively, aggressively embraces her and hugs her and continues to sing. We cut to inside the preacher's house. The preacher and both of the women there, tea is offered. Technically, Brother Justin offers Iris to go get tea, which I'm not pleased about. Um, But Iris leaves. Justin and the woman have small talk. Her name's Eleanor. She's from the camp. He embraces her hand and feels a coin up her sleeve. He admonishes her very loudly and very condemningly, and she starts to cry. Amongst her sobs, she starts gagging. To her and his shock, she starts vomiting coins. They get on their knees. When he looks up and yells enough, it finally stops. 
He looks down. She is still crying, and there are no coins on the floor. First intro to supernatural power. That's probably not the right word, but something out of the norm. Yeah, the phenomenons. Phenomenon. (laughs) You know what's weird about this bit is that we're going into a church, and already the preacher, I don't like him. He's not done anything. He's not said anything, but like, I just don't like him. He has a vibe. (laughs) And part of it is, I don't know how to say it. Like, he just looks out of place there. I mean, he's leading it, but he looks bored. Yeah, and then also just kind of going from like, you know, we've talked about how the dust is so everywhere and everything of where we're just at. And then everybody's clean and they've like definitely had food (laughs) and, and are just kind of insulated to the extent like disconnected they're in their own little world singing their uh got the whole world in his hands kind of situation yeah their house is definitely nice they are definitely not struggling at all i love the actor that plays the preacher tana i'm sure you're gonna know his name clancy brown thank you he's in so many things He's not like the typical leading man, but he has such a presence in his in his work. The whole coin scene is messed up. I know we're calling it a phenomenon, but like, it's intense. There's no other word for it for me. I don't know how you guys feel, but I just see like, he is vengeance is how I feel about it. Yeah, in the commentary, they were going on about how much they loved Clancy Brown because he can go from the the cool, calm priest to enraged in like two seconds flat seamlessly. I think he's definitely one of the strongest actors here. Well, they're all pretty strong, but he's pretty standout. The coin vomit scene is a bit different in the script that I have, but he seems more forceful trying to get her to confess that she stole coins even mentions like oh iris saw you steal and after everything he invites her back which i thought it was kind of weird (laughs) (laughs) and then i just have a few little uh character descriptions for the few here for justin they say he's smooth shaven hatless a handsome face curiously unlined as if his 35 years have left him untouched by any real trial or suffering. For Elnor McGill, uh, mid-60s, snaggletooth. She stands apart from the others in the last row. Her clothes are frayed, the shoulder of her sweater torn. Dust and sweat has lodged deep in the creases of her face. And then for Iris, it just says that she's a striking woman in her 40s. I guess the short character description kind of makes sense for Iris because I know she was not an original character. She was more like an afterthought because originally like Justin is supposed to be farther along in his career, but he didn't really have any support system. So they decided to throw in a sister. (laughs) Here's Iris. That's interesting because I think it's, fantastic when you first meet him it's such a good contrast you have him who's man when do i get the clock out and like these people and then she's like really into it she's no no we've got to keep going and i swear when she does when she catches the woman stealing it's she has her own presence there i don't know like you've ever had like one of those teachers that are just like really on you or like really like you didn't even think anything bad, but like you might think something bad. And they know that she's been patrolling before kind of situation. Yeah. She's got her own power. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. quiet, powerful. I like it. Yeah. So we are back in Oklahoma again. Jonesy and Samson are driving at night talking about management and the hick. We cut to a kid's room. We see a boy and a handicapped girl go to the window and watch the carnival, and all their lights pull up. They are in complete awe. Then we cut to a trailer that is pretty extravagant. A blind man and a bearded lady are playing cards. They refer to each other as Lodes and Lila. The young man, Ben, is sleeping on the couch just in a blanket. Lila looks over at the young man and comments, It's a fine-looking boy. 
Yes, he is, Lila. Yes, he is. (laughs) In a flirty tone, she asks Lodes to read his dreams. He puts his hands on the young man, and we see expanded scenes from the earlier dream again. Lodes convulses and mutters scutter. We see more scenes and then collapses in Lila's arms. So we got a lot of things going on in that boy's brain. And that is exactly what you're focusing on, his brain. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, a lot happening here. I I like um, the discussion that they have, uh, Gen Z and Samson in the truck. Again, I I, I like their dynamic. I like their energy when when they're in the same scene. Um, I like the little touch of adding like FDR on the radio, which I thought was cool. But I like that we got to see the carnival as the kids see it kind of magical and a bit of wonder happening. And we opened the episode talking about wonder and they get it like looking from, you know, with the night sky and the carnival coming in. And in general, the show shows this group in different lights. And I, I like how they just, build upon that loads in the bearded lady they have a good relationship i feel like it's very healthy uh there's a bit of flirtiness there's a bit of respect and i just think it's healthy <laughs> what did you think dana i like that there's like an ease between loads and lila you can tell they're very close and they've been i was gonna say good friends but they're not really friends well they are but <laughs> They've had a close relationship for a long time. There's some beneficial (laughs) friends is what you're trying to say. Yes. I really like that Lila and Lodes have a sexual relationship. But what I like is that neither of them are what you would put as you know someone on a tv show that is has a healthy sex life it's an older man and a woman with a larger body and facial hair but you can see that she's still this sexy being that has that as a facet to her you know which i appreciate i agree i love the confidence totally empowered yeah and i mean hey, it works for them. And that's great. It, we, we can tell like the sexual undertones, but clearly there's like a very good connection there too. It's sweet. I mean, it's very sexual, but it's sweet too. So apparently in the earlier scripts, uh, Lila wasn't even written that way. They changed it because uh, when uh, Deborah came and auditioned for Lila, that's a persona she chose to use for Lila, and they loved it so much that they changed it. She nails it. When he tries to read his dreams, he didn't think he'd be reacting in such a like a hard way. He's having a seizure, and he's just like reading in dreams. He's not even really doing anything. Yeah, and then Ben's just chilling, like, oh, another night of slumber. We go to the morning, and we're in a different trailer. We see the young woman that stayed in her truck during the funeral. We find out later her name is Sophie, brushing the hair of her catatonic mother. We hear a one-sided conversation about Ben. During the conversation, cards from a tarot deck fly. As Sophie is picking up the cards, she looks out the window and sees Ben coming out of the trailer in nothing but a silk-flowered robe. The chains have now been cut off. She looks down, and the card in her hand says, The Magician. Ben goes to grab his clothes from the line and slips in mud and becomes the recipient of a ton of hazing about him being a freak. And in that next moment, we see Samson going into Lode's trailer. Lode's tries to convince him that the boy is dangerous. So kind of setting up some atmosphere of the carnival. The standout for me is Jonesy's dancing. I mean, (laughs) that man has a future. No, I like how Sophie's mom looks very well cared for. I don't look that good on any given day. (laughs) And uh, the choice in robe was very tasteful. To set up very well how Ben is the odd man out or the freak. Because the kind of hazing started when Ben was staring a little too long at the lizard man. And the Siamese twins walk by. 
clearly Ben is the freak and they all kind of gang up on him. He is in their world. They're not in his. And they're very all very comfortable with who they are. That's mm-hmm. what I like about the show is that everybody is, no, this is who I am and mm-hmm. they own it. And we see that with each interaction we get with these characters. So then Ben starts to walk down a road, clearly in a huff. And no more pretty robe, back to his normal boring clothes. Sophie passes him in a truck and she asks him if he wants a ride. He rudely declines while insulting the whole group. She scoffs and drives off. He walks farther past people camped out along the railroad and stops for water. A man sits there mumbling, it ain't right, and gestures to a woman rocking a baby in a bundle. Ben walks over to the woman and says, you have a really pretty baby. He softly looks at her in the eyes for a long time until she quietly says, he's dead, ain't he? He answers, yes, he is. She sighs and starts to cry. She lets him take the baby and he hands it to his father. The father starts sobbing in relief and sadness. This is another one of those scenes where they don't have to say a lot to get a lot. I think that you just get to see Ben being completely compassionate in a way that he can. You know, up until this point, we've seen him where his mother shunned him and he's kind of getting made fun of. But in that moment, he is complete empathy. And I think she's crazy in grief, but she's not. She's very still in the moment. And just when he takes the baby, it's healing for her because then she can kind of really grieve and then the father can really say goodbye. Tina, isn't this one of those scenes that they kind of changed up a bit? Yeah, some of the script I have is a little bit longer. Mildred, who is the woman with the baby, she has kind of a monologue. She's talking about miracles. <laughs> could see why it was cut, though, because they, they didn't really have to say anything. They could convey so much with their facial expressions was really really mesmerizing according to the commentary apparently this was the first day of shooting ever they also said it was really hard to find locations the dust bowl because it was really hard to find places that are flat and dirty yeah i think also the scene of the camp it's just such a great way to show the state of the world and the state of poverty So we go to Sophie. She's getting gas from two attendants at a station. Uh, Later, Ben comes up to the truck and sees it empty. He hears screaming and struggling from inside the garage. We cut to Sophie and the two men struggling. The young man comes in, grabs a 4x4, and hits one in the back of the head. Sophie takes care of the other one with a big can of oil, and they both storm out together. They are now arriving back in the truck. She is holding her shirt closed. He looks over to her and she asks, what are you looking at? At that point, Ben kind of comes back to and hands her his jacket, but over herself. Ben and Sophie get back to the carnival. Sophie's sitting in her trailer and Jonesy comes in and asks her what's happened. This is the conversation we learn her name for the first time. Like, she's in so many scenes, but this is the first time we hear her name. She explains that it was the men in town, and Ben stopped it. Jonesy lectures her about going out, and heavy duty implies that it's her fault. I mean, I should actually say, he doesn't imply. He pretty much says, yeah, you were asking for it. That gets him a heavy-duty slap on the face and kicked out of her trailer. She sits a moment, tired, and then yells to her mom, Would you please shut up? (sighs) Yeah, a lot of stuff going on in that guy. Well, it's the first bit that really focused on Sophie. and We see her being independent. We see her going off and then having this situation. And she fights. Ben doesn't save her. He helps, but he doesn't, he's not coming in to save the day. She's to a certain extent used to like taking care of herself. And given like where a lot of shows could have taken this scene, I I think that we didn't need them to go into it more. We, we got to the point of it, which is seeing how these characters respond 
with those kinds of circumstances. I like that Ben doesn't pity her. I mean, he's definitely clueless about her, but like he, he doesn't pity her. You know, then we see the opposite piece of it where it's like Jonesy is all, well, you should have thought about what you are doing existing in the world like you are, you know. <laughs> he sees the world as it is very practical, even if it's very, very wrong. He should definitely have some pamphlets sent to him. (laughs) (laughs) But I also think it's like how he tries to cope with he wasn't there to protect her. So like, if he's not there to protect her, she should do absolutely nothing. You know what I mean? Like he feels responsible for her. At least that's the vibe that I think their their scene plays. You guys might feel differently. Yeah. Things because he was a bit of her guardian as she was growing up. So he's really overprotective. I don't think he sees her power and how strong she is. Yeah, seems like there's friction there where he doesn't see her, but also he doesn't necessarily know how to be around her either. Yeah. Like at no point in this conversation, does he ask, are you okay? He's not supporting her in the way she needs Yeah, absolutely. We see the opposite where even if Ben is kind of derpy about it, like he's also, he's not judging. He's not a talker, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And that's kind of, I think, how Sophie needed at the time. Yeah. And I think Ben, Ben knows very little about her at this point, but he knows that she, during this fight, after he hit the person with the first one with a four by four, he was looking to get stabbed and Sophie rescued him. There was kind of a partnership. He's witnessed Sophie's strength. And just the moment when they both like walk out that door of the garage and she throws the can down. I don't know what it is about that moment, but I'm just like, yes. <laughs> you know, that was the first time where I was like, I hope they get married. Like <laughs> it was such a like Done and done. It's just like that moment when you see like the bad guy get their just desserts. It's very visceral and fulfilling. (laughs) What does the script say about this, Tana? I thought the script was quite different, actually. Well, in general, I think the scene at the gas station was more violent. Also, the two men, their names were Red and Junior. I believe they're father and son. Which makes it way creepier. (laughs) Junior covers Sophie's mouth and holds a screwdriver to her throat. Red makeshifts a whip. After Ben steps in, Sophie hits Junior in the back of the head. She starts kicking him really hard. Junior is bawling and says, please, God, make her stop. And then Ben hauls her back and makes her stop. So I was like, okay, is Ben answering God's prayers already? (laughs) And then, oh, they mentioned in the commentary, Clea did not like the idea of Sophie losing control and like kicking this dude. And she thought it was better if she would just hit him and leave. They said there's a worldliness of Sophie, even though she's in the carnival, she travels and exposed to violence from men a lot. So it's more of winning this round and leaving. She knows the world she lives in, which I guess I kind of agree with was like really violent. Then this would just be a a different show. Well, and like we would focus on the violence, right? We wouldn't focus Mm -hmm. on the little subtle things of their partnership or how really she's more escaping in survival. It would have been honing in on the grotesque or the macabre. Not that they're listening, but <laughs> good job, guys, on the on the <laughs> editing process. I approve. <laughs> <laughs> so then we go to Ben walking out to leave the carnival yet again. Samson follows him. Kid. You're going to be made an offer of a lifetime. The young man turns around and says, quit calling me kid. My name is Ben Hawkins. This is when we finally learn his name, Ben Hawkins. We've gone through most of the episode and he was always referred to as the hick or the young guy. So it's kind of an interesting choice. Ben starts walking further away and then Samson starts yelling about, What wages does Johnny Law pay? And that finally gets Ben to stop. We see Ben and Samson eating. 
Samson's trying to find out more about him, but that clearly backfires, and Ben storms off, leaving the food. We go to night. Ben's walking around, checking out the atmosphere and all the acts. We see the disabled girl from earlier being lifted onto a carousel. Ben steps into the Hoochie Coochie show and gawks at the stage where two topless dancers kind of give him eyes and flirt with him a bit. We're outside that tent and Ben hears a man setting up a quote-unquote date with one of the dancers. Ben is slightly aghast and Samson walks by and responds with, Rita Sue didn't do nothing to that chump that First Merchant's Trust did not do to you. Think on that, buddy. Touche, Samson. So we get to see a carnival at night and a full show. Yeah, I, again, I like this because we're coming at it from different perspective, right? We're showing them create magic, and that's pretty cool. I really like... Kind of, again, seeing Ben and Jonesy, a little contrast. Ben notices the little girl, but Jonesy is the one like, let me take care of you and put you up there. It's just kind of how their styles of dealing with people are, are there. This scene made me rethink of the scene of like how they both approach Sophie. What I also like is that because Ben is observant, is like he notices so much. And so while everyone else sees the wonder, he sees, he sees like the back behind those curtain deals, you know? Everything is is input that he's taking in. Apparently, in the script, we see some more things from the carnival. Like, we see, like, Lyo's act and the flasher that we see pimping out Rita Sue was actually pimping out Lila. Because originally, the Dreyfus family wasn't even in the show to begin with. They were added after consulting with a carnival expert. They're like, you need a coot show. And that's run by a family. In the commentary, they said they thought the carnival was like too serious and too clean. Well, and I mean, everyone's poor and I could imagine it had a draw. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, also in the script, as he's walking around the carnival and seeing all these things, he sees uh, one of the Rousties chucks, chucks a heavyset man. And then he sees Ruthie seal his wallet. He's just kind of like really repulsed by everything. He doesn't even like the cute show. I just think he's just weirded out by it anyway, but he doesn't like anything that he sees, which I think is kind of weird because the show is different in that way. You actually see him take it all in and express amazement at some things. Well, I mean, it, in the show, it sounds like the carnival is more on the up and up. Like they're not actively ripping. I mean... They are a little bit, because their freak show is kind of... But they're not stealing, per se. I think it kind of plays into, like... So you have Ben, and we we know he's been rather isolated. And a choice of direction. Do we want him to be curious about these this kind of things and be, like, almost on the more optimistic side? Or do we want him to be like, well, forget everything. This sucks. I'm going to go over and read. These people um, are terrible. I'm going to blog about them. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, again, I like how they went with it. It means it's like, it's more humanizing. So then we get some nice character interaction between Ben and Sophie. He's sitting on the bed of a truck smoking when Sophie walks up and hands him his jacket back and thanks him. They have a sweet conversation with a little bit of humor in about what transpired earlier and whether he's going to come on full time or not. That is when we hear that great quote we opened up the podcast with about them coming to town and waking people up. As she walks away, he says, hey, what's your name? Sophie. He starts to say his name, but she interrupts. Ben Hawkins. I know. And kind of half smiles and turns away. This is the second time that I want them to get married. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's just cute. Like, he has his guard down around here, which I appreciate. While maybe he is freaked out by them he's a little less freaked out by her 
do you guys think agree with that the whole carnival wakes them up definitely if anything it's just their lives is probably work and survival and here's this moment where they see all sorts of mysteries and wonder what about you tana i agree i think it definitely brings a sense of magic to everyone's lives you come to the carnival and you see these things that you don't see every day uh, you get to ride rides, you get to play games and have fun, just do all these things you don't do on a daily basis and bring great joy to people. They definitely do wake them up. Well, and you know what I was thinking is that Sophie is a strong person, so we don't really get to see her guard down much. I think in that moment it is, we see that pride that she has of, yeah, it's imperfect and bumpy and this is really beautiful and we don't see any you know, traces of cynicism at her heart, she loves the world that she is in. Also, I feel compelled to say Ben and Sophie don't need to get married. They could also <laughs> have a committed long-term relationship or however they want to define their relationship. I just want them to get together. <laughs> yeah, I did too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know that I felt that way initially. I think I saw them as is kind of like peas in a pod maybe not necessarily like married peas or like you know established committed relationship peas just birds of a feather kind of vibe it's good chemistry it's a it's a hard chemistry to pull off yeah i know in this script there is a few instances where it does refer to ben being attracted to sophie and i know like the actors they were friends for years beforehand so that was probably really benefited them having like a easy chemistry on set i didn't know that but now that you've said that i could definitely see it so then we get more flashes but with different scenes spliced in also and then we see brother justin waking up super sweaty iris is just on the couch watching him he walks out, and we see him going down a street, looking at the city around him. He stops in front of a neon sign we saw in his dreams, Mr. Chin's. All of a sudden, it starts snowing. Then, raining blood, the sign sparks out, except for a part of the H that looks like a cross. He gets down on his knees praying, and then all of a sudden, everything's back to normal. And he looks up, and he's just some weirdo on his knees on the street. In the commentary, they say this the scene took a long time to shoot, took a few months, actually, because, you know, there's interiors, exteriors, there's snow, there's blood, it's a bunch of stuff. Personally, I think it's creepy how he thinks, like, God is talking to him. He's, like, looking for a sign, and then the lights go out, and all that appears is, like, the red neon cross, and it's just like glowing. And you think it's a sign from God, but I'm like, how do you know it's from God? <laughs> <laughs> it also was a great scene, just, you know, in the couple seconds where he's walking down the street and you're seeing urban poverty. Mm -hmm. So we've kind of seen the three areas and how people are living. We saw farmland, we saw the camps just outside of town and now we see urban people suffering and it, it was nice how they ran through all three of those in just one episode do you guys think that because i have a thought and i'm not really sure i'm 100 on one way or the other but it almost feels like so the earlier scene with ben helping out mildred was almost like, yes, poverty, but like poverty together, like, you know, families together and just trying to make it. But we see it in the day when it's bad, but it's not like scary. But at night, it it's it's much more ominous. We're also seeing it through the Justin filter, too. That's interesting. Yeah, because um, Ben, if you if we look at it like that, like Ben's filter is in the light. Justin's is in the dark. And they're both looking on essentially the same situation you know, poverty, but like Ben is trying to make it better. Then Justin is kind of wading through it. Yeah. One thing that I appreciated with Clancy Brown with this scene and with the previous point vomit scene is how well he <laughs> portrayed shock. 
Like he clearly thinks these things are happening to him Mm -hmm. versus any other option. Do you guys think he's kind of seeing this for the first time? Or is this a familiar world that he's kind of like paying attention to now? I feel like probably similar to Ben, something happened when he was younger and then he brushed it aside for a really long time and is just now coming back into the light. Yeah, I kind of agree. I think he can't turn away because it's so tangible. So he has to register it. But I do think that there was things that happened when he was younger that he could have an excuse for. It wasn't as loud, so it was easy to be in denial about it. But I I thought this whole scene was filmed beautifully. It was just creepy, but also the snow looked beautiful and the light looked beautiful and very cinematic. Mm -hmm. Did a good job. So we have our final scene of the episode. We see Ben working really hard, helping them break down. Apparently he's now Carney. Sophie pops out and says, last chance for the card reading. They sit down and she picks past for him. First card is the moon, which means confusion. We get a flashback to Ben as a child holding a cat and his mom explaining, what did you do? She's three days in the ground. Adult Ben's clearly rattled. And then the next card is death. Not bad, but transformation. We go back again and see the mom drowning the cat in bathwater, saying Ben is marked. Kid Ben is crying. Back to Sophie. She stops to listen to her mom and then shows the last card. The magician reversed. Sophie is telling him he has a great talent, but it has been wasted. He then sees his mom dying and refusing to let him touch her. Sophie touches his hand. We get an intense flash of Brother Justin's face. Ben runs out of the trailer and into the field crying. He slumps down and we hear the little girl in the wagon asking him, why are you crying? They start talking. Grammy says you all are marked. He says we aren't marked, just people. He then asks her about her legs. As the carnival starts to leave, Ben wraps a hand around each of the girl's legs. We see some of the crops right there start to dry. We see Ben run through the field, pulling himself onto the last truck. And then we go back to the farm, and as the camera zooms out from above, we see the little girl is running stronger and stronger to the house as an area of dying plants gets larger and larger. So, last scene. The, the tarot reading, super stressful, and the bit with the cat, um, I thought the acting there was fantastic, this, like, being scared and, and frozen and how from an early age his gift was put as a bad thing he's marked by the beast and we get to know and understand why ben is so reluctant and justin saying tell me such a powerful thing but that's like one of his abilities to do is just to bring it in a thunder i also thought the cgi bit was really uh very well danced for the year it came out held up well um and i like that he doesn't try to help her until he asks does it hurt the whole being left alone a field thing we can all agree <laughs> <laughs> maybe not uh alone in the field strange man comes up to you hmm. might have been some lack of education there <laughs> uh yeah that was for sure we really need this girl to like ask him and just randomly be there some 100 plot device In the script that I have, she's not actually alone. She's with her brother, Tommy. But then Tommy asks Ben to watch his sister so he can use the bathroom. And then he runs off. I I don't know that I feel that's better because it's like, (laughs) hey. Yeah. Strange, disturbed, emotionally, not very sound man. Will you watch my disabled sister? I gotta go. (laughs) I know you're crying, but I really gotta pee. <laughs> but just, that aside, and my qualms about random girl wagon being there, I thought it was 
So beautiful. Such a great way to show hope a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as he runs towards the carnival, it's very looking to the future. Throughout Mm -hmm. the episode, he's all like, leave me alone, you weirdos. And, And then ultimately he's like, yeah, sure. Why not? He chooses to go on the ride and see what the next bit is. When we started the episode with this fire and brimstone, very deep, dramatic monologue, and we end with light and him running towards the unknown, I think that's really beautiful. Yeah. I think one thing that I, I kind of think about after watching this, you know, at the, the first time I watched it, I was like, Ah, killing plants. That's a great way to take life from somewhere. That doesn't hurt anyone. And then after watching it again and kind of having more context about, you know, the Great Depression and farming being so hard. Yeah, no one was directly hurt, but that's probably a month of food and a month of wages for this family gone. It always has consequences. Yeah. Well, and I think ways in which we've known he uses gift is we know that he has awareness that he can heal from the cat flashback. I would think that that's traumatic enough where he probably hasn't tried it again. And so he's running away without like really looking at the consequences. I mean, again, he's a kid, so it's just kind of like he's embracing his gift, but he really hasn't thought about what that means. He might not have put the two and two together at this point that there are consequences in anything that has happened might just seem a coincidence to him, you know, in the past. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Yeah, all he knows is he did it once as a child and then was completely rejected by his mother for the rest of his life afterwards. So I feel like something could be scared to do more afterward. He's just been feeling rejected and worthless forever, and that it weighs heavily. In the commentary, they say they think Nick Stahl does a great job to convey a great deal of tension and suffering with great stillness. That's what the role needed, too. Try to imagine the show with like a lead like Ryan Gosling or something. Like it, it just doesn't work the same. It needs someone who can quietly convey and he does that really well everyone in this show is beautiful in various ways but no one is unattainably beautiful Mm -hmm. yeah and i mean think about the shows at the time there wasn't a show on air where you had such an ensemble where you had gems of wonder in all kinds of people And even now, that's not the standard. (laughs) We're just talking about the pilot. But even from the pilot, like if no one watched a single episode afterwards, it would stand alone as a really good story. I don't know. I think that if the pilot was watched by anybody today, it would still be a good story. If it was watched 20 years before then, still be a good story. Even the like the long, um, like high end shows, they're dated. You can tell when it was made. And this show, I've never felt that way. Yeah. No. <laughs> so what was your uh, standout character or scene, Tina? Ooh. Uh, I don't know. All of them? <laughs> <laughs> um, I do like Ben. Well, when I first saw the show, I think it was around like the same peer group. So I definitely like related to Ben. I don't know, it was just nice to getting to see like the carnival through his eyes. Okay, let me ask you this. Having liked him the most, do you would you say he is the lead in this episode? Oh, of course. Of course. Okay. I I I could go either way on it, because everyone else does such a good job, you know. I mean he's the principal of the story, but in how it flows, but in terms of looking at it as being introduced to a world, I could see it being that too. What about you, Monica? Uh, favorite character in this episode? 100% Sophie. <laughs> yeah. I did not have to think about that <laughs> at all. She's just so badass. I would probably say Mildred, just because I just thought she had a really nice scene that tied things in for me when watching this episode. Of like, that was the one it turned. 
from, okay, we've introduced everybody. This is kind of the thing. And then that little bit of compassion he shows is just cracking open and not like it was just really beautiful. I think this is probably one of the best pilots out there made. Absolutely. Well, everyone, thanks so much for spending an hour and some change with the three carnies. I've had a good time and hope you all have too. My name is Jen. And my name is Monica, the one that has a crush on Nick Stahl. <laughs> and I'm Tana. The one who is informed. <laughs> and tune in next week as we discussed after the ball. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye.